Hey, George Cedarquist here, host of Opera Box Score. All right, I know you want to get to the podcast, so I'm going to keep this short. Opera Box Score needs your donation to retain its title as America's talk radio show about opera. You can give on our website, operaboxscore.com slash donate. When you throw even 10 bucks our way, it helps us promote the show to more listeners. Just 20 bucks helps cover our website costs. Chip in 50 bucks and we can pay to wax Tobias's back. But for real, please consider a donation of any amount to help us continue to bring you our hot takes on everything opera-related. Operaboxscore.com slash donate. Enjoy the podcast. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. Uh, Let's get ready to rumble! Wherever you are, However you're listening, welcome to America's talk radio show about opera, period. I'm your host, George Cedarquist, joined this week by Oliver Camacho, and our guest co-host tonight is Daniel Grambo. More about him in a minute. We are live on WNUR-FM Evanston, Chicago, so you can be one of our listeners who gets to have their say live on the air, 847-866-WNUR is the number in studio. We're also streaming live on WNUR.org slash pop-up. Again, call us, 847-866-9687. All right, he's the artistic director of the Floating Opera Ensemble in Chicago, currently directing the company's upcoming production of War and Peace, a composite opera about the First World War. Daniel Grambo joins us inside the huddle to talk directing and what it's like to do an opera in a cemetery. Then I play Monday evening quarterback and review the final Met in HD broadcast of the season, Robert Carson's new production of Richard Strauss's Der Rosenkavalier. I'll tell you what the biggest moment of the night was, and it wasn't Renee Fleming's curtain call, that segment at the bottom of the hour. And of course, you get all your opera headlines, our hot takes on them in the two-minute drill. We got a lot to get to tonight. We're going to cut straight to the chase and talk some opera. Huddle up. Let's go inside the huddle. Opera Box Score on WNUR 89.3 FM. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho. And Deidre, thank you so much for coming on the show tonight. So you are working on a huge project at the Floating Opera Company. And before we get to that, can you tell us like how the company began? Yeah, sure. So... Um, 2014, um, me and a bunch of people from Chicago that were singing at the time, um, I moved here like basically 2013. Um, I met a bunch of people through a lot of performances I did through Vox3 Collective and a couple of different companies around the city. And um, we all got together and we're like, you know, we'd love to do a cozy. And we put that together uh, together. And essentially um, after that, um, we just kept on going. So um, I stepped into more of a leadership position after that. And we incorporated 2015, and since then we did 20 productions, kind of back to back to Man, back. Man, it moved really fast. Yeah. What do you, you mean? Twi- you mean not 20 different shows? Being like 20 performances? Yeah, 20 performances okay. throughout three states. Wow. So you did the the cozy. I know you did this uh, Don, Giov- Don Giovanni at the crematorium, which I think we talked about on this show. Um, what else have we has Floating Opera Company produced? We did uh, Quantum Mechanic in June. Um, that was by John Bellotta, stage directed by um, uh, Andrew Snyder. Brilliant. Um, and then also we did a couple like um, small shows that kind of went out. We did 
Panda Bridge and a part of a show that I put together called 30 Minute Barber, just like Samuel Barber meets Barber Seville. Oh. Uh, kind of <laughs> <laughs> um, and then we also did um, uh, Shakespeare in the Park, with, um, which was like a all Shakespeare texts, um, 30 minute show that was with Fury Theater kind of at Indian Boundary Park. We did Aria Power Hour, which is like a small little like shout out 30 minute show at um, Bridgeport Open Studios down at Bridgeport so Arts this Center. Is kind of jukebox thing that you guys did? And then um, Opera Jukebox yeah. was something that we did hmm. um, actually through, it was through Chicago Opera Theater okay. um, a while ago. And then we did Opera Bingo. Which is at Davenport's, which is a different show too. Um, okay, so <laughs> let me just say this really quick before we get talk about your next show. I'm, I'm sometimes gonna be a real jerk, um, and people who read <laughs> don't say. who read my blogging know that I'm sometimes critical of these opera companies that kind of sp- spring up that seem to be vanity projects for whoever is leading the helm, and don't really have a clear mission besides to maybe promote. You know, some or to get some stage experience for certain people, and uh, don't really care much about the experience of the audience and the experience of the other performers, and you know, helping them develop skills. You know, getting them in real costumes, getting them on a real stage, putting some lights on them. These sorts of things usually fall by the wayside with these, you know, newish opera companies. Uh, and I can say. From experience, having after having seen the the Don Giovanni, that floating opera company is not like that. I thought the Don Giovanni was fantastic, and it really gave me a chance to just enjoy the show for its own sake. And I got to hear Whitney Morrison sing, who was just uh, added to the Lyric Opera, the Ryan Opera Center, and she's amazing. It was the Giovanni that was at the Bohemian National Cemetery. Yeah, yeah that right? was the one, and th- that was my like real first directing. Um, um, project that it was completely my own concepts completely just me going for it in the cemetery yeah but, um it was yeah. definitely an experience <laughs> um and you had kathy o'shaughnessy who is now like the ubiquitous uh conductor here in chicago of all chamber opera companies and you had projected titles and the projected titles were really you know projected in a, in a beautiful way the space is beautiful but in a way that really didn't distract and also added to kind of the feel and like if you saw the show from certain angles, you could really, you know, see the orchestra and see the projections and see the singers without having to move your head. Right. And it was like really beautiful. You know, there was like really photographic moments in that show. There's so. one, there's one person I'd like to give a shout out to um, that was instrumental in this show. Um, yeah. That didn't get enough credit. And that was um, Joaquin Louise, who arranged all of the wind parts for the entire orchestra. Wow. Um, which was pretty phenomenal because I thought the orchestration actually turned out really well. Yeah. So. Hmm. All right. Um, so tell us what Floating Opera Company has next. So we're doing um, War and Peace, which is coming up in about 12 days. You know, there's like a <laughs> Russian opera called War and Peace, isn't there? Like uh, Tolstoy. Yeah. yeah based um, on the book. No, no. Like, yeah, Tolstoy is the author, but like there's a, an, act, is a, an actual German, Russian opera called War and Peace, isn't there? Yeah, I think they probably made it into an opera okay. at some point. I'm, I'm confused. I'm pretty sure that there is. Okay. Yeah, Tolstoy is the author, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. Yes. Okay. yes. Okay. Of this composite opera. He, okay. he wrote all four parts. Yeah. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a composite opera. It's not actually written by one composer. It's going to be Debussy. It's going to be, um, Prokofiev, everybody. Pro- <laughs> not Prokofiev. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. It'll just, be, um, Poulenc. It'd be a, a big, um, mixture of kind of a lot of different, um, styles and a lot of different genres, um, all in one piece. Um, and it's going to have to do with, um, the narrative of a couple soldiers going off to battle and, um, there'll be Salve Regina featured by from Dialogues of the Carmelites. There'll be um, 
pieces from Poor Game Bess. There'll be a piece from a really awesome um, folk opera that a lot of people don't know about, which is um, Hades Town by Aeneas hmm. Mitchell. And it's a piece um, that's very relevant today, but it was actually written like about 10 years ago, um, which is called Why We Build the Wall, um, which if people are following politics today, might see a lot of relevancy <laughs> in that. Hello. Okay, so this piece isn't necessarily featuring music that was composed during a war specifically. It's a couple different ones, actually. Okay. It'll be World War One, World War Two, Vietnam, um, and then kind of today. So. Okay, and then the setting of this opera, is it in a recognizable era? It's, it's um, pretty ambiguous, but yeah. I would say that um, where they go in the narrative is to the front lines in Paris, and that's very obvious with the French text that goes into part two, and that also is pretty obvious with the projections that will be corresponding to... Um, the narrative. It's Opera Box Score on WNUR. George Cedarquist and Oliver Camacho talking to Daniel Grambo of the Floating Opera Company. My question is, so how do you make connections between the different pieces of music in the show when they're not by the same composer? We're doing that through a couple different transitions that'll happen. Um, specifically, um, some parts of the set. Um, just to talk technical, I mean, we have a giant screen in um, the Chicago Temple. I don't know if you guys have been there, but it's beautiful. And mm -hmm. kind it's of, right in the loop, right? Yeah, it's yeah. Daily Plaza across okay. from City Hall. Ah, um, man, it's <laughs> all part of the picture. Wow. Uh, on Memorial Day weekend. Um, yeah. So um, it's the centenary of World War I. It's pretty obvious to a lot of people that are making art now that it's been 100 years since the Forgotten War. Mm -hmm. And um, this piece kind of... Um, Essentially, the biggest part of um, the set is one giant wall we build on stage through muslin and like a couple different um, stands that will go up. Mm. Um, besides that, we'll be doing silhouettes and projection that will be moving through from piece to piece. Um, different formations being marched, a couple different people having solo parts that will um, expose relationships between different characters. I don't want to get too specific because I want totally. people to experience of it. Of course. But, um, and it is meant to be truly experiential. That's right. Right. I yeah. mean, it's not it's not a concert. It's not a recital, even though it is uh, composite, which I think is such a great word for it. But it really is. I mean, I think this is what the company does so well is that it, it's not just producing opera. It's really producing experiences. Yeah. And that's what we did with uh, Giovanni. I mean, people parking next to tombstones and walking into an active crematorium where like earlier in the day they're cremating bodies and then we're performing an opera up upstairs. Um, I mean, you, you get a really organic experience. And I think that the Chicago Temple is very much a church. Um, and there's a lot of um, prayers that kind of are sung during this production that kind of add to that feeling of, um, of grief mm. and that um, feeling of kind of hopelessness and then eventually hope, you know, through the piece. And mm. I think um, doing an opera in a church for a reason is a lot better than doing it just for convenience or for cost. So um, we're real, we really were pretty specific with why we're choosing this piece at the temple. Um, yeah. How do you match like the venue with the material? You've talked about it a little bit on War and Peace uh, and Giovanni, but I mean, if you had to look, you know, forward to some of the other ideas that you have, or or trying to getting into your process a little bit more, like how do you align those things? What is going through your mind? I think the theme of like the piece needs to come out. So I mean, if you're doing um, a piece that's very, let's say, bohemian. Um, you want to have something that is not completely regal or elegant. Mm -hmm. um, and the, the cool thing about Chicago that a lot of people just don't realize is you walk past historic buildings that have so much to relate to the art that we do as opera singers or producers or directors. 
um, that you just are walking right past that could be demolished in the next year. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of build. I mean, we work a little bit with Landmarks Illinois, um, which is a preservation society in Chicago, and they are very active with the historic watch list for buildings that are being torn down, for different structures around the city that are being neglected and need support. And the cool thing about Giovanni is we donated $1,000 back to the crematorium mm-hmm. to help them restore the site. Hmm. And um, that's something that I'm kind of passionate about. I think that um, Chicago's history is kind of something that people need to appreciate a little bit more. And I mm-hmm. think as opera singers, using a classic um, form and updating it, if you're updating that, doing an updated new production in an old space is kind of painting a picture of what we're kind of doing with sound and light. Have you thought at all about the danger of not being uh, associated with one or affiliated with one venue and your audience having to find you all the time? Um, yeah, but I think that in this digital age, um, subscribers are a digital thing. And, like, you know, we can contact people through email. We can contact people through social media. We can contact people through mail. I mean, as long as they know where they're going, um, I'm hoping that they will come and try to find us. I think that's something about adventuring out to a performance is kind of exciting. And I think that, um, yeah, we want to make sure that every audience member has an experience that's comfortable and where they don't feel in danger in the space. But I think that um, part of the, the thrill of, of experiencing something new is to kind of find it. There's mm-hmm. a couple of theater companies that do that. Walkabout Theater is one of them that does mm-hmm. it very well. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's a lot of companies that I just wish could adapt more of that adventurous attitude. I know that you guys at, at Fringe did like a really exciting kind of mobile experience as well. So God, and that was a phenomenal pain in the ass to put together. <laughs> I was going to ask you that though, like when you're doing something at Bohemian or uh, even in Chicago Temple, which isn't you know truly built as a theater, like what sort of challenges are you wrestling with in terms of the technical side as a director because you're not in a proscenium? Um. Green room space is really non-existent most of the time. Um, we for for Giovanni, we put down green carpets next to the crematorium equipment <laughs> to try to insulate the feeling. We brought down flowers. We brought down a lot of like things to make everything positive. But you were very much in a cemetery, and it's like you know keeping that place as a and, safe. And there's place. no there's no lighting outside either, so it was kind of dangerous. Like if you were walking to the crematorium outside it's like pitch black dark you know yeah yeah and we were trying to use like you know guides and flashlights for the ensemble members Mm -hmm. but it ended up being too staged where people were in creepy masks and yeah yeah but the cast party afterwards at the crematorium was just (laughs) awesome so in the last events we have before we have to go to the next segment um tell us a little bit about how you know at the end of don giovanni and quantum mechanic um, the reputation of floating opera began to rise. I remember seeing you on some kind of panel, maybe with Brian Dickey, I forget with who. Like, uh, Anthony uh, Freud. Anthony Freud, yeah. yeah. Mm. What was that all about? Oh, so um, um, Eric Lee um, is in the, he's like in, in the financial journal down at University of Chicago. Anthony mm-hmm. Freud was also there teaching a course mm-hmm. and was wanting to do a panel between a grassroots um, company owner and also Anthony Freud and just see how that worked. And he put it together and I got to talk with Anthony for a while. Um, for about like an hour and then I, went, I talked to him afterwards too but it was economics of opera and the studies of you know german baroque um institutions in the 1980 in like the, in the early 1900s and Whoa. um how baroque opera houses were built up through like you know roads being built and that was like an influx of communication and this opera house effect of, appeared it's actually super interesting there's like a couple yeah, of articles cool. i could post if you guys wanted to see it but 
Yeah. Um, but how did you get involved with that? <laughs> I was asked to be on it. Okay. Um, yeah. So Eric came to our show and he invited me to be on the panel. So. Nice. Nice. Well, is, is it safe to uh, give out your uh, e- your web address, your uh, website address? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, sometimes you say, where can we find you? And then people don't have their stuff together. Yeah, so it's w- why don't you tell us where we can learn more about War and Peace? www.thefloatingoperacompany.com. Wait, wait, that's W. 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 Okay, three W's. Okay. Dot <laughs> the floating <laughs> opera company dot com. And War and Peace is the link to all the info is actually on the front page. So awesome. Yep. Coming up next, there wasn't a dry seat in the house when Renee what? Fleming sang the Marshallin for the final time ever last Saturday at the Metropolitan Opera. I play Monday evening quarterback and review the HD broadcast. Keep it right here on WNUR. FM, an opera box score. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. And if you think I'm just going to keep ticking away, you're wrong. I can quit whenever I want, but I like my job. Just treat me better. Maybe we can do some exercise on occasion. After all, we're in this together. Don't let your heart quit on you. High blood pressure can lead to a stroke, heart attack, or death. Get yours to a healthy range before it's too late. For help keeping yours at a healthy range, text PRESSURE to 97779. A message from the American Heart Association, the American Stroke Association, and the Ad Council. Kids witness bullying every day. They want to help, but they don't know how. There are safe, simple ways your child can help stop bullying. Teach your kids the five bystander tips. Tell a trusted adult like a family member, teacher, or coach. Help the person being bullied get away from the situation. Be a friend to the person being bullied. Set a good example. Do not bully others. Don't give bullying an audience. Visit StopBullying.gov to learn more safe, simple ways your child can be more than a bystander. This message from the Ad Council and WNUR-FM. The storks are bringing me a baby brother! We can do this! All right, let's go. Storks know how to keep kids safe. Do you? What? Oh, my gosh, you don't know. <gasps> I know. You don't. <laughs> oh, man, you laugh when you're uncomfortable. <laughs> no. Making sure your child is in the right car seat is one of the steps to safer travel. I will rock this. You will rock this. To know for sure that your child is in the right car seat for their age and size, visit safercar.gov slash the right seat. Cool, cool, cool. Very cool, very cool. Brought to you by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration and the Ad Council. Opera Class. Sports Radio Crass. This is Opera Box Score. Who made the grade? Here's Monday evening quarterback. Thank you, Norm Waddell. George Cedarquist here with Oliver Camacho and our guest co-host, Daniel Grambo. Did you say dry seat? Did you mean dry eye or did you really mean dry seat? I really did mean dry seat. You haven't heard that joke before? Mm-mm. That's an old Is it like about joke. Uh, secretions? It's about people being in their pants because oh. they're so excited. Oh. <laughs> and okay. they were. Okay. They were just peeing all over the place. <laughs> it was it was like Donald Trump's dream. <laughs> Clean up on aisle five. <laughs> it was what? Donald Trump's dream. Uh, yeah. He that's... likes people peeing? Yeah. You didn't hear about that? <laughs> that's on the Russian tapes. That's on the, uh, what's that guy? The, the, the English. Vladimir opera, like... Putin. The MI officer, I forget his name, something Steele. John uh, Steel, yeah. uh, Christ- Christopher Steele. Christopher Steele, yeah. It was on his, his PP tapes. Yeah, Jonathan Steele writes trashy romance novels. Okay. Christopher Steele nice. is an MI5 agent. Oh, Christopher uh, Reeves, I miss him so much. I 
went to see the Met in HD broadcast. Congratulations. That was on your second Saturday one, right? Night. It was my second one of all yeah. time. Yeah. Uh, the first one was our hot date, Oliver. I know. I when remember. We saw Pro uh, Fishers. Pro Fishers. Yeah, Matthew Polanzani. Good. good. This production is one of those productions that you go and see and you just think to yourself, yes, this art form can still change lives. It was so good. Wow. The cast, obviously, this is, it's the Metropolitan Opera. It's a great cast. We'll just kind of run down. Renee Fleming, of course, as the Marshallin. Alina Garancha singing Octavian. You practiced that one. I did. (laughs) Erin Morley. I didn't have to practice that yeah. one. Singing Zofie, uh, Sebastian Weigel in The Pit, the production directed by Robert Carson. What about the Baron Ox? And Baron Ox by Gunther Groisbuck, nice. who is Austrian. But I want to start, let's just start with a little music clip first. Okay. Uh, for, this is the Act 3 finale. <laughs> That was taken off the Met website from the final dress rehearsal. Gosh, I'd forgotten how good the Met Orchestra is, by the way. They are such a great band. So here's the deal on the production. And actually, Daniel, this is going to tie so beautifully into War and Peace. Because what Robert Carson did is he set this production of Rosenkavalier in the year that it premiered, which is 1911. And his interpretation of the piece is that it is essentially about the passing of time, the end of time, right? And that's afflicting every character in this show. So if you look at Octavian, this is a boy who's 17. He clearly is going through puberty and adolescence. You look at the Marshall, and who in the text is 32, by the way. Oliver, did you know that she's actually supposed to be that young in the text? That was old back 32. then. People died when they were 50. That's, so. a, that's a fair point, right? And so at the end of Act 1... The Marshallin has a long aria, which is about how she stops all the clocks in the house and how she's trying to hold back time, but she knows she's getting older. And then that affects her relationship with Octavian when Octavian starts to fall in love with Zophie. 
The setting is absolutely perfect because in Act Two, when Baron Ox uh, gets engaged to Sophie, it turns out that, and I didn't remember this from the story, is that Sophie's father is an is a arms manufacturer. Wow. Yes. And it all starts to make total sense because <laughs> he's manufacturing the weapons for World War I. Then you get into Act 3, which is in, supposed to be in some sort of like rented hotel room in this production. It's a bordello full of sort of sin and boozing and scantily clad women. It's just fantastically staged. The final image of the opera. So let's just talk through the final sequence of the opera. The marshal in leaves. Zophie and Octavian alone. They collapse in bed together in an embrace. This uh, servant, whose name is Mohammed, uh, he appears sort of drunk, teetering. And basically, this hotel room fades away, and we are left with the image of all these soldiers in a single fire line in World War I uniforms, guns at the ready, and there's this puff of smoke, and they all collapse. That is why we go to the opera, is to see a How is that related image to like that. the Rosenkavalier? Because it's about the end of an era. Yeah. Because, because it's, ni- it's 1911, and you knew when Strauss and uh, Hoffmannsthal were composing this, they knew that something was on the brink. And that image just ties in so perfectly to everything else that has come before it. Hmm. It's beautiful. It really is. It's, it's just so well done. I mean, I watched Robert Carson's work. He did the Eugene Onegin uh, that was at Lyric earlier this year. That was a revival. That show had been at Lyric before. I, and I said this to Dan before uh, the radio show tonight. I was like, ah, I wish I had those guys' ideas because they're just <laughs> so, they're so good. Now, I admit. But do you feel like that tableau was earned? It was totally earned, man. Okay. It was okay. absolutely earned. Absolutely was there, earned. Because you said that they built up the uh, Faninal's uh, c- career or his business as an arms builder. In Act, in the, in act, in act 2. two. Yes, but was exactly there, right. apart from that, was there any reference to, you know, what was happening in time? What was, you know? Not really. I mean, you, I, I think if you looked at the costume design, you knew that it was sort of turn of the century. The piece is set in Vienna, right? So it does have this sort of fin de siècle feel this uh, in act three when they're in this bordello and it's all extremely body it does have that sense of like uh, what vienna might have been like in in that time period when everything was just a little bit i don't know how to what the word is but just a little bit naughty very surreptitious Mm -hmm. very private but also very very dark and very like sexually perverse Right. When you think about the psychologists that are writing at that time, when you think about the artists that are painting at that time, it all starts to make total sense. I haven't mentioned, except for in the opening credits, the guy who sang Baron Ox. And again, that was Gunter Gosbeck. And I'm going to be honest with you. He kind of stole the show. That's what it, that's what's been said about him. Yeah. He kind of stole the show. He's a he's a young, a younger version of Baron Ox, a little bit more, you know. Uh, it's possible to see that Sophie would marry him or that he would do well at a bordello or something like that, you know? Exactly right. I mean, I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, guys, but the role Ox tends to be played by sort of an older, doddering... A, a buffo. Uh, a buffo. Yeah, uh, yeah, a buffo yeah, base. Exactly. But a Schwartz boss. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And what, what um, Grossbuck said 
in one of those um, interviews that take place in the intermissions, he said, look, I listened to the music and to me, the music is very alive. And so he played a younger ox, a guy who actually is really dangerous. He comes across as really dangerous as a guy who's like, who's going to be a truly abusive, nasty husband to Zophie. And then there's really a reason why she wants to get out of this marriage because she knows that she's going to be punished by this guy. P.S. Gosbeck, the singer, is absolutely enormous. Oh, really? He's built like a, like a brick poop house. <laughs> okay. Um, he, I mean, he's, he's huge. I mean, just, let's just make sure everybody knows. Like, that's in the, in the libretto. Like, the, the menacing qualities of Baron Ox and his potential threat as a, you know, as a husband to this delicate, the ingenue, you know, 15-year-old girl. Like, that is a very scary part of the show. You know? Yes, but it was, it was physicalized in a way that I, if it was like an old fat dude, which is the way the role can be played, it wouldn't have that same sort of sense of danger, I okay. think. Uh, it's Opera Box Score on WNUR, talking about the final Met broadcast of the season, Der Rosenkavalier by Strauss. So what were, what were some of the intermission features for those people who didn't get to see this? Well, the first one I missed because I lost my wallet, and so I had to go looking <laughs> for my wallet. Uh, Matthew Polanzani was the host. And he, also the Italian singer. Right, and he was he was picture perfect yeah. for Caruso. yeah. Which was so delightful. Awesome. You're like, oh my, he's like wearing a fat suit and he's got the white linen uh, jacket and trousers and the little sort of pencil mustache. And it was like, oh, we get it. It's, it's Polanzani playing Caruso and it's funny. Nice. And, and he did a great job. Uh, but in the first intermission, no, he talked to um, Alina Garancha mm-hmm. and to Renee Fleming. And then in the second intermission, he talked to Gunther Grosbeck uh, and Sebastian Weigel, the conductor. And Aaron Morley, they're very full. I mean, those intermission bits, which I kind of love. I know, you can't really get out to go use the bathroom or anything like that. Well, yeah, I mean, they give you like 10 minutes to try yeah. and, and sneak out. Yeah. Um, I want to tie this in, though, to what one of our listeners had to say about it, Paul. And Paul wrote to us, he says, I'm going to see DeRozan Cavalier at my local cinema on Saturday. I'm excited to be sure. But I do wonder about how much the broadcast distorts the experience an art form should i think of the simulcast as simply a different art form than live in-person opera daniel grambo what's your take on that does paul have a point i think that you um you need to experience kind of the whole the whole thing if you can i mean like if you have a concert you said experiencing like in in the simulcast version you're you're in a theater you've got distance between you and and everything but they're trying to make it feel like it's being in the house. But I'm more into the experiential, like you go to the opera, you experience the lights, you experience the people that you're sitting next to, and you experience the same show at the same time and the same emotions. And you kind of get drawn into it in a, in a way that's not just listening to a concert. Oliver, do you judge us uh, well, I, I HD mean, on the same terms as a live performance? Let me just, in response to Paul's note there, but, and also to dovetail of what you're saying, um, there is something about being in the theater that teaches you how to listen to opera. I mean, when you have your headphones on, listening to your iP- your iPhone, or when you are even in the HD broadcast, you know, you are not acclimating your ear to what music really sounds like in a hall. And I think people think things are going to be much louder. Now, granted, there are some singers out there who are actually very loud and their voices penetrate no matter what the size of the hall is. But even, you know, voices that we describe describe as big, you know, when you hear them in the space, like, there's the sound of the room. There's the sound of the audience sucking up some of that sound. There's the sound of people crinkling their 
you know, cough drop wrappers, you know, that that's part of the experience and might be part of the annoying part of the experience too. But there is something about being in a space with a community of people who are all witnessing the same thing. There's a feeling that you get. Like when I remember, I remember seeing uh, Juan Diego Flores when he was relatively new, sing Barbara Seville and like do all these really dynamic staging stuff. Like where he's jumping around and clowning and then he sings these high C's like a god like the audience went crazy for it. And like, you feel it like the we, you know, people generally are polite in the U S but people are like so anxious to show how much they appreciate, you know, and you don't necessarily feel that in the theater. Now to go back to the question, is there something wrong with it? Is it ruining opera? Is it ruining the experience? We ha as opera producers, singers, uh, commenters, we need to get on board with the 21st century. I'm, holding everybody back because I'm the worst. I'm so low tech. You're not but the worst. I am, I'm pretty much the worst, yeah. Uh, but we have to embrace all the ways that there are to share our art. And right now, it's very expensive and only few organizations can do what the Met does in creating, you know, this HD experience. But the, you know, the faster and the easier technology becomes at, you know, documents of these things, the more people like us can begin to create work like this as well. And we just have to go with it. Like I'm, they said the same thing about the phonograph, about CDs. Like, yes, there are so many ways that you distort and you compress and you take away a layer of intimacy or whatever, you know. But yes, that's happening. So accept it. The talking about it's not going to help. Let's figure out a way how to make it easier to enjoy this stuff. I think you're right. I think that in answer to... Paul's letter and hey, thanks, Paul, for writing in. Yeah, and thanks a lot, Paul. I'm no, I'm saying thank you for you, <laughs> <phew>, moron. <laughs> is that we do need to judge the Met broadcast by a different set of criteria. It it is a different art form because it's not. Obviously, it's live. Obviously, it's in real time. But it's a different shared experience to what Oliver was talking about when you're in the theater when there's 3,000 people there, or 300 or 30, whatever opera it is, whatever opera house size it is, and everybody knows, like, this thing is happening right now, it will never happen again, and we are truly sharing this experience together. Versus, like, there's 3,000 screens across the world, and we're all kind of watching the, the same thing. Yeah, I also just to chime in, um, I also think that, like, the stillness, the moments of stillness, um, you don't get in the theater. Like, the ones where, like, everybody is waiting for that person to continue a phrase or that waiting for a fermata to come off. Like, you know, like, and waiting for that little break, like that's so much more human in person than it is um, over the airwaves. But I do, I do agree with you. I think that we gotta, we have got to kind of jump on board and, and make tech work for us. Yeah. yeah. And we get, we're so forgiving in person. Like somebody might sing a little bit flat or somebody might, you know, miss a cue or something like that. And, you don't when you're in the theater you're like yeah that's totally i get it no, no big deal but when you see it somehow when you see it in the theater or you hear it in a recording it's like that's the only thing you notice you know so that is so true oliver you know because the met hd is very high quality and the camera is very close you can you can see the cracks in the set and you can see the chips in the paint and it does not play well on camera a, if you're in the live theater you're not going to see that anyway and even if you could you would forgive it you would forgive little marks on the floor the way that you would forgive being slightly sharp but on screen if it's not perfect it 
absolutely destroys the illusion. Really, the big story, I think, about this show, of course, was that this was the final time Renee Fleming was going to sing the role of the Marshallin. But again, she was really overshadowed, I would argue, by Alina Garancha and by Gunter Gosbeck. But she's the one that got, like, the confetti shower at the end of the show. Well, yeah. yes, because I mean, yeah, she got a confetti shower because it's, it's, it's her party. But, you know, I thought she was going to take the final bow. No, it's the Rosenkavalier. I understand it's called the Rosenkavalier, <laughs> yeah. so the Rose yeah. Bearer should take the final bow. Yeah. I get that. I just thought that maybe she was going to pull rank. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can't see the show anymore because it's gone. If it ever comes it's back... It's going to be played on Tuesdays, the encore, tomorrow. So if you're listening what? to this live, tomorrow's the encore. Yeah. It's oh. Tuesday? Yeah. It's not Wednesday? Usually it's Wednesday, but for some reason it's on Tuesday this really? time. Really? So, yeah. Wow, oh, I stand okay. correct in the evening, I assume. I hope it's on Wednesday. Maybe it's on Wednesday. I'll go on Wednesday. Check your local yeah. listings. If it's on Tuesday, I can go. So. Oh, yeah. cool. Yeah. All right. Okay. Well, hey, you. I guess you well, still one have One of us is going to miss out it. on this. So. <laughs> it's it's just so beautifully done. I, I cannot Aww, recommend George. it highly enough. And did, I rarely say that. Did you have that. somebody with you that'll hold your hand and squeeze it tenderly? I was all by myself. Aww, well, who am I going to take? I'm not going to take, take the kids. Tobias. And my wife is it He's tender. Them. No, I don't need to hold his hand. But he's tender. After the break, it's everything you need to know from Opera Land from the past week and our hot takes on them. And it's only on Opera Box Score and WNUR 89.3 FM. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score. More right after this. Having a stroke. Are you going to shake my hand? I'm having a stroke. Wow, you're not even moving your arm. I'm having a stroke. When someone is having a stroke, they may not be able to say it with words, but their body language will tell you loud and clear. Look for fast. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911 immediately. Know the sudden signs. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. It takes 12 years to create a graduate. It takes the same time to create a dropout. And the difference could be you. Become a volunteer reader, tutor, or mentor. Because when a child succeeds, we all succeed. Take the pledge at unitedway.org and make a difference in the life of a child. This public service message brought to you by United Way, the Ad Council, and WNUR-FM. I'm Paul George of the Indiana Pacers. When I was six, my days were spent playing basketball. When I was six, my dream was to make it to the NBA. When I was six, my mom had a stroke. So I want you to learn to spot a stroke fast. F-A-S-T. F, face drooping. A, arm weakness. S, speech difficulty. T, time to call 911. I'm Paul George. Spot a stroke fast. Visit strokeassociation.org. Brought to you by the American Stroke Association and the Ad Council. This just in, the two-minute drill. 
Time now for the fastest headlines in opera news. Everything you need to know from Opera Land in the past week in two minutes tops. The Metropolitan Opera said that it's taken in 67% of its potential box office revenue this season. That's up only very slightly from last year, which was its worst showing ever. Also at the Met, according to an article by the New York Times, a new production of Gershwin's Porgy and Bess is set for a major Met return in the 2019-20 season. Directed by Bartlett Sher, featuring Eric Owens. San Francisco Opera and Seattle Opera will both present Mason Bates' opera The Revolution of Steve Jobs in 2018 and 2019, respectively. The piece has a world premiere this July at Santa Fe. The Media Cité's site in France has obtained copies of personal expenses submitted by Serge Denis, director of the Opéra de Lyon, from 2013 to 2015. They come to more than 8,000 euros a month, among the extravagances are a dinner with his music director at 644 euro and a new pen at 600. So Bryn Terfel continues to do his evolutionary duty. The popular baritone is celebrating the birth of a baby girl born to his fiancée, the harpist Hannah Stone. Sir Bryn, 51, has three sons from his first marriage. On the disabled list, tenor Jonas Kaufmann is out of Puccini's Tosca at the Wiener Staatsoper. Martina Serafan is already replacing Angela Giorgu. Bass Erwin Schrott will make his San Francisco opera debut in June as Leporello in the company's production of Mozart's Don Giovanni. Schrott replaces bass Marco Vinco. And on this day, Claudio Monteverdi was born in 1567. Well, you certainly don't look 450 years old, Claudi. That's the two-minute drill. Live from Chicago, you're listening to Opera Box Score with George Cedarquest, Tobias Wright, and Oliver the Man Camacho. <laughs> the man. Tobias Wright's not in studio tonight, joined by Daniel Grambo. Thanks for hanging out with us, Dan. Yeah, no problem. Uh, so I, I don't mean to be that guy, but it's not really clear. I think um, Claudio Monteverdi was baptized on the 15th. But might have been actually born on the ninth. Yeah, I had the same question about yeah. that. How do we really know? Yeah. Apart from like, I'll accept the fifteenth though. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you're a big fan. What's your? Huge what are you going to do to celebrate? Well, I, I that's a good question. I was going to go um, to the Monteverdi M- M- Misa in, uh, in Illo Tempore. I think that's what it's called. Um, Bella Voce is doing a Monteverdi Mass mm-hmm. to commemorate the this birthday this weekend. Right. But I have my own concerts this weekend, so I'm going to miss it. Okay. Uh, but so you're just going to be bitter to celebrate. <laughs> well, no, that sounds like no, fun. no. Uh, I'm going to eat a very special Monteverdi themed meal tonight, <laughs> and uh, I am going to uh, subscribe to the Harris Theater's production presentation of the three Monteverdi operas. I'm going to do that right it's now because you could save fifty percent by subscribing. Tell me about right your now. tell me about your meal. I is just made that be up. Like, I don't know what Monteverdi is, but yeah. I'm sure there's like it's. Uh, you know, un- the meat was slightly raw or slightly uh, rotten, so it had to be yes. cooked really hard. I bet know? there was some good wine, though. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Sul- yeah. It's with no sulfites in it. Definitely not. Yeah. 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 It was all organic because that's what organic food was called yeah. back then. It was just I'm, called yeah, food. Yeah, I'm into historically informed, like, productions of operas like that, but I don't know if I'm into historically informed <laughs> meals, so... Dan Grambo, what are you thinking on one of these stories here? What is tickling your fancy? You know, I, I read something uh, 
that you sent out today, like uh, or, or earlier this week, right. uh, about Renee Fleming writing personal letters to people or personal thank yous to people. That's awesome. I think that's really, really cool. That's right. The story was, this is hearsay, hasn't been confirmed, but obviously she knows that she's doing this final performance of Marshallin and Rosenkavler at the Met. And so she wrote a handwritten note. I don't think it was to every orchestra member, but it was definitely to the orchestra at the Met. And I think there was some flowers and chocolates involved. That was pretty classy. Uh, Bryn Turfel, child number four. Different wife, yeah. I mean, if you listen to... Uh, Excuse me. They're actually not married. So this is a child out of wedlock, (laughs) might I add. Will the Welsh never learn? Yes. (laughs) Um, Back to the Met. (laughs) Um, This is really interesting. I mean, we basically talk about this all the time, but there are some really interesting numbers in this article that came out. I think it came out today even by Michael Cooper in the Met. So they uh, had 66%. uh, They sold their potential capacity of tickets um, in 2015-16 season, this year they're up ever so slightly to 67 percent, but they're looking that as a good at that as a good trend. But it does beg the question that we started to pose last week: like in a house that seats 4,000 people, yeah. you know, how are you going to bring in new audience members? And with the subscription model dying, dying, it's really dying. It's literally yeah. dying. Um, what do you do? I mean, I know of a place that makes if you buy three shows you get a 50% discount and it's called a subscription, you know, just pick three for the love of God. You know, we're doing like 20, but just pick three just so we can have your name in our database and have some place, you know, to go into the well, you know, uh, that might be a model, but I don't know if we have to com- completely move away from the idea of subscriptions, which is scary. You the know? annual budget of the Met is $300 million, by the way, that I found that to be absolutely shocking. So these are big numbers that we're talking about here. The 50th anniversary concert, which they just have, raised $8 million, which at Floating Opera or Fringe Opera, oh, <laughs> don't even tell me what I could do with $8 million. And that's just a fraction of the Mets annual budget. I don't know what the solution is. I'm not going to propose a solution. All I know is that 67% capacity is pathetic. And I think Peter Gelb knows it's pathetic. Yeah, but I heard I heard a statistic somewhere. I don't know if you guys have heard something similar, but there's like thirty, like what what percentage of revenue actually goes toward from from box office sales? I mean, like I thought I, I saw a, a number like thirty three percent, thirty five percent. It's not. I mean, like so much of operating costs comes from donors and buyers. yeah. I understand yeah. that, but in terms of public relations and in terms of the audience's experience, like yeah. who wants to sit in a theater that's two thirds full? Who wants to have this kind of statistics out there where it's like they can only sell two-thirds like every singer wants to play to a sold-out house yeah and in order to to qualify for some of those grants and whatnot you have to show that you're you know presenting to a certain number of people you know yeah and uh, they have to do a lot of you know uh, community outreach and educational programming and etc so yeah it's it's tough but maybe just don't open the balcony is that what you told me they do at the lyric you know or put some tarps over everything well, that's, that's what they do at like at, at football stadiums where the crowds are not big enough to fill. They just put big old tarps with like the logo over the thing. They could just do that over the third balcony at Lincoln Center. So I think that they sort of announced that um, last last week with the gala that Eric Owens and Pretty Yende, Pretty Pretty Yende, are going to be singing in that. Um, Porgy Porgy best. Best. Thank you. Yeah. Because they're black. 
It, well, I would certainly hope that black people <laughs> yeah. are going to be singing those yeah, roles. Me too. Yeah. That would be strange. Well, I mean, we have a lot of white people singing Otello, so. Hey, man, we got a lot of, a lot of white people singing Asian parts. And, um, <laughs> exactly. I, I, th- I think we're going to get to that on next week's show, actually. Uh, talking of money as well, I, I don't know Opera de Lyon that well, but looking at some of the numbers that came out from this director, this is a general director we're talking about, Serge Doni, 644 euros on dinner. That's crazy. A $600 pen. I mean, really, dude? What does that ink even look like? I mean, like... It's, it's, but uh, he's using the company's money to, to buy these things? He's using the company... These are his personal expenses paid for by the opera house that he is saying are like business related. Well, at basically. least they know how to pick a present over there. So yeah, that was, that was, well, I was going to say it was a close call. Actually at the end of that election campaign in France, it really wasn't that close. Yeah. But still, I mean, personal expenses like for opera right now should not even gross remotely close to like, how much is that a week? That's like, All right, well, 8,000 euros a month. So let's say that's two thousand euros a week. I don't know what I don't know if I could spend that much money. I understand that if you're the general director of of an opera house and this is an opera house of a certain size, of a, a large size, like you know, looks are important, aesthetics are important. You have to and you have to take meetings, you have to travel, you got to sell co-productions. I get that. It does not look good in an era of. Eurozone austerity to have these sorts of details come out. I'm sure he's refuted this at this point. I'm sure. But so have you looked into Mason Bates as a composer? I don't know Mason Bates. The person I do know is Mark Campbell, who is the librettist of mm. this piece. What do I need to know about Mason Bates? Well, as I was doing research for this, I just happened to click over to Mason Bates' website, which I think is like masonbates.com mm-hmm. or something like that. And there's a YouTube video of him describing this piece. I think it's like an orchestral piece that uh, is to like John F. Kennedy's speech or something like that. And he just sounds like a really smart guy who understands how audiences listen hmm. and how to compose, you know, in, in today's world where people don't have like great attention spans and maybe don't have like a good right. musical vocabulary, you know, but to still make something contemporary and, and new. And so based on that little clip, I know I'm totally talking out of my behind right now about this thing but it exists out there go to mason bates website and watch a little video then you'll know what i'm talking about and then you'll be interested in this opera which is being co-produced by seattle and san francisco and it was starting in santa fe and okay. then it's going to san francisco and seattle yeah that's awesome revolution yeah. of steve i mean these Jeff. are some these are some big opera houses it's a it's a big idea it's a big topic talk about smart guys and steve, steve jobs, jobs is a yeah. a uh, refugee? No, he's not. His his family's well. He's a Syrian of Syrian descent. I did not know that. Yeah. Wait. You Steve Jobs was of Syrian descent. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think I think his parents might have been refugees, or somebody up up the family tree of his are from Syria hmm. as as refugees. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Wow, that's a long way from being a Syrian refugee to founding Microsoft. Uh, I'm just kidding. Okay. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder uh, if um, the character of Steve Jobs is going to be like, you know, countertenor and Waz is going to be fat tenor. Oh, okay. You're assuming they'd both be tenors? (laughs) It was a joke because I said fat tenor. (laughs) Because Steve Wozniak, he was fat. 
You need me to spell it out for you. So, you and I are just not on the same page tonight. <laughs> no, uh, ever since you brought in another just, director into the room, now it's you, so confusing you, you feel in here. Threatened, don't you? you feel <laughs> so, uh, Santa Fe is also doing Madame Butterfly and okay. uh, Doctor Atomic and stuff like that, right? Right. Yeah, yeah, they have they have a very interesting season lined up. I was looking at even their season for 2018 is already up. Wait. Dan, Wait, so, you're talking about 2018? No, no. So it's like Ariadne Afnoxos, Dr. Atomic, Man of Butterfly, and the Steve Jobs thing? Am I talking about 2018? I oh, saw another article, but... Le- it, here, yeah, you know, we are, we're, we're mixing our metaphors here. So 2017 is Lucia de la Memor, Flater Mouse, Alcina, and the Golden Cockroll. Mm, I gotcha. Sounds like I might like that. Um... And then the Steve Jobs opera as well. But wait a second here. Golden Cockerel. Yeah, that's like an old, like, Le Coq d'Or. Rimsky Corsicoff? Yeah, it has like a famous coloratura soprano thing in it. Okay. Yeah, but right I don't know. That's all I know about it. I love it. So Al- the Steve Jobs opera is happening this, this summer. Oh, it is Rimsky Corsicoff. Yeah. That was a lucky guess. Yeah, no, the Steve Jobs opera is this, happening this, this summer. Yeah. This summer. Okay. I just thought, for so, but the, they announced they announced a season for next year. Yeah, because which, they're so on top of it. But that just made me. It, it was just kind of. I, I see what they're doing because it's Doctor Atomic and Modern Butterfly. Mm-hmm. But you know, which is an interesting commentary. But I don't know. Go ahead and explain what the relationship is there. Oh, I mean, I mean, it's it's Japan, and <laughs> it's you know, okay. it's a very important t- uh, time like in World history. World War II ish yeah. era. Okay. Doctor Atomic, you know, obviously the nuclear bomb. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. Uh, and then what else is it's Ariadne, Ariadne of Noxos and something else for, for 2018? Yeah, yeah, I can't. Find we're, not, that. we're not quick draws I, today. That, not that's for yeah. Sure. I was gonna I was gonna hold off on on talking about that. I'm still yeah. obsessed with this the, with the revolution of Steve Jobs. Sasha Cook is in the show. Nice. Kevin Newbery is directing it. Michael Who? Christie is conducting. We never hear enough about uh, Kevin Newbery. You're kidding, right? I am kidding. Yeah, yeah he's all over the place. Well, for good reason, because he's like America's greatest director right now. <laughs> I thought the David McVicker or whatever it was, or the okay. Robert Carson. David McVicker. Robert is Carson. From I'm sorry, Britain. Robert Carson. Robert Carson is also from Britain. Oh. Maybe you're thinking of Peter Sellers. Okay, so you have cast lists for the. Uh, so Sasha Cook plays who? Lorene Powell. Oh, okay. Who is Steve Jobs? Edward Parks. Edward Parks. And Garrett Sorzen is singing Waz. Nice. Does he look heavy? Uh, I'm not going to comment <laughs> on that headshot. I'm not going to take that bait, dude. <laughs> I've yet to ever go to Santa Fe. I would love to, I would love to go out there. We should make a little trip. We should set up a GoFundMe to all our listeners. Do like, a show from send, there. Send George to Santa Fe. Actually, wait. I am going to comment on the headshot. Mason Bates looks like he's like 12 mm. in this headshot. He's probably not. No, he's not. But um, that's cool. Uh, hey, we should wrap this show oh, up. Oh, no. Oh, yes. Time to wrap it up. <laughs> Good call. Bad call. On Opera Box Score. Thank you, Daniel Grambo, for hanging out with us tonight. Yeah, no problem. It's been a lot of fun. Good call, bad call. We're going to let you, our guest, go first. What do you got? What's a good call or a bad call from this week in opera or for something that is coming up in opera in your life? I'd say good call. Um, I mean, good call would be coming to War and Peace. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, bad call would be call. not coming to War and Peace. <laughs> besides that, um, I think good call would definitely be Renee Fleming writing thank you notes. Bad call would be um, opera de Lyon or like 
<laughs> yes, that was a mess. Spending too much money on a pen. Oliver Camacho. Well, um, yeah, this is a really weird time on the calendar when all the opera companies basically are like, you know, licking their wounds and counting how much money they lost, you know. So there isn't so much happening well on the put. opera front. Uh, but thankfully, we do have these like little fringe companies that are still producing work in these kind of like late spring before the summer begins, summer festival season begins. So right now we have Floating Opera Company to look forward to. That's it for this week's show. Our announcer is Norm Waddell. Visit Norm on the web at voxershorts.com, V-O-X-E-R-S-H-O-R-T-S.com. The general manager at WNUR is Nick Anderson. Our theme song, Vodka Inferno, is written and performed by the Diablo Swing Orchestra. On Facebook, search for Opera Box Score. Like our page, share, love, or mock our posts. And on Twitter, we're at Opera Box Score. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Help promote our show by leaving a review. The creative consultant for Opera Box Score is Oliver Camacho. For our guest, Daniel Grambo, I'm George Cedarquist, asking you to continue the conversation about opera with a mom in your life. No, it's not too late. We're back next Monday at 9 Central when we're once again joined by director Amy Stebbins and composer Hauke Berheide. If you've heard this pair on our show before, you know that you're going to need to bring your brain when they're around. Join us. Argo Radio is up next with DJ Joe. This is WNUR-FM, Evanston, Chicago. Chicago's sound experiment. <laughs>